Our text this evening is uh, from the final chapter of Ezra, chapter 10, and we'll be reading the whole thing. Let's read God's holy and inerrant word. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehonanan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem, and that if anyone did not come within three days, by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited, and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the twentieth day of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so. We must do as you have said. But the people are many, and it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open. Nor is this a task for one day or for two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Ashael, and Jeziah, the son of Tikva, opposed this, and Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levites, supported them. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of fathers' houses, according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month they sat down to examine the matter, and by the first day of the first month they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. Now there were found some of the sons of the priests who had married foreign women, Marcia, Eliza, Jareb, Gedaliah, some of the sons of Jeshua, the son of Josedach, and his brothers. They pledged themselves to put away their wives, and their guilt offering was a ram of the flock for their guilt. Of the sons of Emir, Hanai, Zebediah, 
of the sons of Harim, Marcia, Elijah, Shemaiah, Jael, and Uzziah. Of the sons of Peshur, Elonai, Marcia, Ishmael, Nathanael, Jozabad, and Elsa. Of the Levites, Jozabad, Shemai, Keliah, that is, Kalita, Pethahiah, Judah, and Eliza. Of the singers, Eliashib. Of the gatekeepers, Shalom, Telim, and Uri. And of Israel, of the sons of Parosh, Ramiah, Isaiah, Malkijah, Majamin, Eleazar, Hashabiah, and Benaiah. Of the sons of Elam, Mataniah, Zechariah, Jehiel, Abdi, Jeremoth, and Elijah. Of the sons of Zatu, Elanai, Eliashib, Mataniah, Jeremoth, Zabad, Aziza. Of the sons of Babai were Jehonan, Hananiah, Zabai, Athlai. Of the sons of Bani were Meshulam, Maluch, Adiah, Jashub, Shael, and Jeremoth. Of the sons of Pahath Moab, Adna, Chelal, Benaiah, Marcia, Mataniah, Bezalel, Binuai, and Manasseh. Of the sons of Harim, Eliza, Issachar, Malkijar, Shemaiah, Shimeon, Benjamin, Maluk, and Shemariah. Of the sons of Hashem, Metaniah, Matata, Zabad, Elephelet, Jeremiah, Manasseh, and Shimei. Of the sons of Bani, Mardai, Amram, Uel, Benaiah, Bediah, Cheluai, Benaiah, Meramoth, Eliashib, Matanai, uh, Matanai, Jasu. Of the sons of Binuai, Shimei, Shalamiah, Nathan, Adiah, Machnadebai, Shashai, Shariah, Azarel, Shalamiah, Shemariah, Shalom, Amariah, and Joseph. Of the sons of Nebo, Jael, sorry, that one, Zabad, Zabina, Jadai, Joel, and Benaiah. All these had married foreign women, and some of the women had even borne children. A man approaches the gates of heaven, and an angel stops him before he can enter and asks him one simple question. What are you doing here? The man responds very briefly, saying, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? The angel responds to him. The man looks and says very plainly once again, I don't know. The angel looks at the man very baffled and starts to ask him a bunch of questions. Do you understand the doctrine of justification by faith? What church were you a part of? When were you baptized? But the man continues to stare back at the angel, not having any answers for what questions he would throw at him. Finally, in frustration, the angel looks at him and asks, on what basis are you here? The man looks quite plainly at him and says, the man on the middle cross said that I could come. What is it that we need to get into heaven? What do we need in order to gain entry into the celestial city and gain access to eternal life with God? 
In the Christian world, we have a tendency to really overcomplicate this question. And this story, this illustration from Alistair Begg stands as a great example of how simple our faith actually is. The story is an illustration based of the story of the thief of the cross found in the gospel of Luke. As Jesus was being crucified in the midst of his death, someone being crucified right next to him cries out to Jesus in repentance and in faith, asking for Jesus to remember him when he gets to paradise. His faith was simple. He called out in repentance and faith and was saved. So what do we need to get into heaven? What do we need to be with God once again forevermore? The answer is simple. It's faith in Christ for the salvation of our souls. We don't need extravagant works to try and beef up any record that we could produce and prove to God that we are something else. Instead, we simply need to come before our Lord in repentance and place our faith in the one who has already offered salvation to us. It can't be more simple than that. Repent and believe the gospel. Tonight, I want us to focus on that very first part of the faith journey, repentance. This evening, we will be finishing our series in the book of Ezra, looking at Ezra chapter 10. If you recall last time when we studied Ezra 9, we saw the nation fall into sin by intermarrying with the surrounding nations. Ezra was lamenting over the nation's sin because they were welcoming idolatry into their lives, which threw the previous generation into exile. When we studied Ezra 9, we looked at the three distinct steps in the process of true repentance. Tonight then, as we study Ezra 10, we will keep our focus on true repentance with an emphasis on the emotional process that is behind repentance. Let's focus on the tension that our sin brings, that repentance brings in our souls, not because it's bad, but because it's actually healing to come before our Lord in repentance. We will look at the three emotional aspects of true repentance which are as follows. We will see that true repentance requires responsibility. True repentance requires change. And true repentance has a memory. All of this with the hope that we will see why we should come before our Lord in true repentance. But before we get into Ezra 10, I just want to give a similar clarification to what I gave last time when we studied Ezra 9. The intermarriage of the, of the nation being a sin has nothing to do with the fact that it was interracial marriage. The Bible does not condemn interracial marriage as a sin. And any person who tries to make this argument from this text does not understand what the text is actually about. The reason that this, this instance of interracial marriage was a sin was because it was leading the nation of sin, the nation of, uh, of Israel into sin and idolatry, pulling them away from the God that they loved and they were serving. I treated this more in depth in our previous study, so if you didn't get a chance to hear that original message or want a refresher of why this is a really bad argument, please, please go listen to that message. 
I will be working with the understanding that we are on the same page about that one. So with that clarification out of the way, let's jump together into Ezra chapter 10. Read with me again verses one through six of that chapter. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehonan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. You see, after, Ma- after Ezra had made a public display of the grief and sorrow over the nation's sin, he had invited the nation to participate in public repentance, which we see here in this chapter. Ezra is before the Lord in confession, and a large group of people gather around him and join together in this lament. After some time, a representative for the people, Shechaniah, steps before Ezra to confess exactly what they have done. The nation has broken their faith with God by willingly indulging in the sin of intermarriage. You see, they had many warnings in the scriptures about this exact sin, as well as a warning in the previous generation who was punished for the welcoming of idolatry. There is no understating that what the nation has done here is wrong and there is no avoiding to the, the fact that they have fallen into sin once again. When Shechaniah realizes this, and that the nation has fallen into sin, he also notices and says to the people that they are not without hope. Even though our sin may tempt us to believe that we will be abandoned by God, that we will be left by him and judged by him, we know, and Shechaniah here especially knows, that this is far from the truth. There is still hope to be had in God as we believe in a faithful and a forgiving God. If we are to come before our God in repentance, we can expect to receive grace from our merciful God. So then what, does, what solution does Shechaniah say? He comes before our God and he takes responsibility for the sins that have happened. He, t- he commits these things and he says that he will commit to doing everything in his power to stop them from embracing idolatry again in the future. They will rely on Ezra to make the final call on behalf of the nation and then they will then remake the covenant with God to whom they have wronged. You see, in reading this story, 
We should look to Shechaniah as an example of how to take responsibility for our sin. When we are faced with the consequences of our own sin, we are never meant to feel comfortable because sin is inherently harmful and our conscience, as well as the Holy Spirit, which dwells inside of the believer, knows that this sin is uncomfortable. Instead of sitting then in this tension that is produced by our guilty conscience, our instinct should be to take responsibility for our sin, just as Shechaniah does here in Ezra chapter 10. However, resolving that tension is never easy. When we fall into old sinful habits, it is within our sinful nature to try to come up with a way to push the blame off of ourselves. This is our natural instinct when living in sin. So we must be aware of how we are to deal with this tension internally because if we don't, we will make any and every attempt to justify our own sin. So tonight, I want to tell you about two ways that we try to get out of taking responsibility for our own sin. And that is by making excuses, and that is by also ignoring the problem deliberately. You see, when we make excuses, we desperately comb through our circumstances and try to look for a reason for why what we did was actually justified. For example, we might think, oh, I've been feeling really lonely So that justifies me drinking more than I know that I should. Or maybe that justifies me looking at pornography because that will make me feel good. You might think I was justified in yelling at my spouse or at my children because I've had a really hard day at work today. You may think, oh, I was justified in cheating on my work or on my taxes because my life is already hard enough. You see, our sinful spirits will stop at nothing to come up with an excuse to justify our own sin. You see, this has been a problem even since sin was introduced to mankind itself. Think of our forefather, Adam, who when he sinned in the Garden of Eden, bit into the forbidden fruit and sinned against God. And then when God came and confronted him about the sin, he pointed to his wife and said, well, God, you were the one who gave me this woman, so it's not actually my fault. You see, the second way then that our sinful spirits cope with sin is through the blatant ignoring of our conscience. You see, when I was preparing this message, I couldn't help but think about my family's dog back home. You see, our dog Lucy is a German shepherd mix who has been with us for about 12 years She's a great dog, but one of her biggest flaws is that she's very much afraid of strong wind and thunder. You see, whenever there's a big storm at home, Lucy gets incredibly anxious and calms herself down by eating some of the curtains throughout the house. (laughs) After a storm, we will almost always find a big chunk of the curtains missing, and we will know exactly who the culprit was. My mom would raise her voice and immediately Lucy would look like the guiltiest dog in the world. It's because she, tries, she even tries to avoid my mom by going into different rooms to get out of the scolding, but she's never successful. You see, when we're confronted with sin, we can easily fall into the same trap. 
We try to avoid any feelings of guilt we might have by completely ignoring it. But once you know that something is wrong, that part of your conscience, especially when it is prompted by the Holy Spirit, will never remain silent. It'll be a weight that, will bear, that you must bear with you until you die and pay the punishment for your sins. Or you will lose that weight if you come to the foot of the cross and leave it at the feet of our Savior, relying on asking for forgiveness from our God. Of course, I want to say the second option is always preferable. So when we are faced then with the consequences of our own sin, we shouldn't be afraid. We shouldn't try and run away or make up any excuses as to why we did it. Instead, we need to come before our Lord like Shechaniah did and call upon his name for grace. Cry out to God and say, I have broken faith with you. I have sinned against you and broken your law. But even now, there is hope for me in spite of this. For you have shown me your grace in Jesus. If we are going to repent and get right before the Lord, we must take responsibility for the fact that we are sinners, that we have made a mistake, and that we have many shortcomings. This is because true repentance without personal responsibility is not repentance at all. Let me say that one more time. True repentance without personal responsibility is not repentance at all. And then once we have taken responsibility for our repentance, we must realize that we need to change in order to avoid falling into the same sin over again. This leads me to my second point for this evening. True repentance requires change, no matter how big, which we see here in verses 7 through 17. But if you would, read with me again verses 7 through 12. The text says, And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles, that they should assemble at Jerusalem, and that if anyone did not come within three days by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited, and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the 20th day of the month. And all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increase the guilt of Israel. Now then make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so, we must do as you have said. Not only then does it take responsibility to admit that what you have done is wrong, but it also takes responsibility to put into action yourself and fix the mistakes of your sin and work past it. This is what the nation does in the response to their conviction of sin. 
Ezra has spent his time humbling himself before the Lord and makes a proclamation to the entire nation to assemble in Jerusalem so that way this issue would be fixed. Ezra wanted to stress exactly how important this decision was, how much they needed to be in Jerusalem. For if anyone decided not to show up, their property would be forfeited and they would be banned from the congregation itself. This relaxed attitude towards sin in Judah was no longer tolerated as their sin needed to be dealt with. Within three days of the order, all the men of Judah and Benjamin had returned to Jerusalem. The distress and the tension that they were feeling was thick as even the weather matched the people's moods. You know how sometimes in movies and books, the writer or author will use the weather to emphasize the feeling in the air? Well, the divine author of scripture here uses the heavy rain described here to highlight the mood of distress among the peoples. Ezra then stands before the congregation to address the crowd. He tells them that the nation has fallen into sin by marrying the foreign women of the surrounding nations and welcoming idolatry back into Israel. Their guilt is before them, so they must take responsibility for their sin and confess their wrongdoings to the Lord. They must get right in front before God So Ezra then commands the men to separate themselves from the foreign wives who had led them astray. The congregation hears this command and agrees to the terms, only asking that they are able to deal with this transition methodically, dealing with each instance on a case-by-case basis, making sure that justice is dealt fairly. Now this is really where we get into one of the most interesting exegetical dilemmas in all of scripture and probably the reason you haven't heard the book of Ezra preached very often. You may be thinking, why is Ezra encouraging the people to divorce themselves from their pagan wives? Doesn't God hate divorce? Well, the answer would be yes, God does not like divorce. We know that because he says so in Malachi 2 and Jesus himself says so in Mark 10 when he says that Moses only made a concession for divorce because of the people's hardness of heart. The Apostle Paul as well encourages believers to stay with their unbelieving spouses to be a witness to them. So why then is divorce thought of as the best solution here in Ezra chapter 10? Well, an important thing that we need to note as modern readers of this text is thinking back to the time period in which this is set. Ezra is an Old Testament book which means that at this point they did not have the complete revelation of God, meaning that they were likely only working from the law of Moses. The only teaching about divorce that we see in the law comes from Deuteronomy chapter 24 verses 1 through 4, which allows divorce if a man finds something wrong in the marriage. Ezra then only has four verses of teaching on this subject to decide how best to honor God. Remember as well, Deuteronomy 7 was filled with warnings about how if the nation would intermarry with the people and welcome in idolatry, they would be punished with exile, which had just happened to the previous generation. So although this may not be the most satisfying answer to us now, the reason this route is taken is because Ezra believed that this best honored God. In this case, particularly as modern readers here in Ezra 10, 
We can believe that Ezra is correct and have confidence that what is happening here was the correct decision because of specifically how we as modern readers read scripture. The Holy Spirit was the one who inspired the biblical writers to make scripture come together. So if this was not the right answer to this incredibly specific situation, then we would read it in the text of scripture itself. It would be condemned. But for this reason, we can believe that this was the right decision. What then followed this decision to separate from the the pagan wives from the men of Israel was then a very thorough and deliberate process. Over the course of the next three months, the elders and judges of each city would deal with each case of intermarriage individually. The, pers- the, the people admit that they have greatly transgressed God here in verse 13. So they decide as a nation to be very intentional with how they are going to deal with these obstacles, specifically so that they will not sin again in the same way. If we believe the list at the end of this book, at the end of Ezra 10, to be exhaustive, which it almost certainly is, that means that there were 110 guilty cases to be dealt with over a period of about 75 days. That means there's an average of about two guilty cases a day. The, the people of Israel were taking this very seriously. It wasn't some willy-nilly command to just separate themselves. No, it was very intentional and methodical. In order to crush future sin after this repentance, it is important for us as well to be intentional and particular about change. Let's think together of sin like cancer. Cancer grows inside of you, usually undetectable by ordinary means, requiring either an MRI or a CT scan to be able to find it. If left untreated, the cancer will continue to grow in the body until it kills the person. To treat the cancer, a person has to go through some of the toughest trials of their life, either experiencing incredibly invasive surgeries or chemotherapy to remove the cancer. These treatments are difficult because they are incredibly painful. But people willingly go through this experience in order to gain for themselves a longer life. The pain that cancer treatment, that cancer patients experience during their treatment is always for their own benefit. The same is true with sin. It grows inside of us, being only detected when it's held up to the word of God. If left untreated, it will grow into yourself and take your soul. To treat it, you need to do the most humbling thing that you can do and fall before the Lord in repentance, asking for his grace and mercy. When you are saved then, the debt of sin has been paid but the sin still exists inside of you and you need to get rid of it out of your life. You need to intentionally work on your own soul and remove any obstacles from your life that will allow sin to grow in the future. It will be painful, but it will never be a waste. 
For once your sin has been paid for and has been removed from your life, then you will be able to start living a life that is honoring to God and complete in Christ. So if you are listening tonight, my encouragement to you is this. Remove sin from your life through true repentance. Confess your wrongdoing before the Lord and take whatever steps necessary to get, remove that sin from your life. Approach it systematically. Think what things in my life are causing me to stumble. Maybe you need to put restrictions on your phone or on your computer. Maybe you need to distance yourself from a relationship that is causing you to stumble. Maybe you need someone to be accountable with whatever it is. Do that. Do that so you can remove that sin. Do whatever you need to to remove the possibility to fall into sin. Remove it from your life. Think of Jesus' words. He said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. For it is better for you to enter heaven crippled than with two hands go to hell. You see, true repentance requires change, no matter how big. So do whatever you must to cut sin out of your life. See, and then once sin is cut out of your life, it is important that the event of sin is not forgotten. Not in a way that keeps our joy or that keeps us in despair, but in a way that reminds us of what has happened and how our God has been faithful to us through it all. This is why for our third point this evening, we will see that true repentance has a memory, which we see in verses 18 through 44. Don't worry, I won't make you reread it. For one final time in the book of Ezra, we come across another list of names. You see, just like the last couple of times, we shouldn't be quick to skip over this list. All scripture is God-breathed. So this list is included for a very specific purpose. The question comes up, especially for a list like this. Here you have 110 people memorialized in the words of scripture for billions of people to read throughout most of history. Why would anyone want their name remembered for their sinfulness? But that's just it. That's just it. We have this list standing as an example that repentance has a memory. The list of names stands as a memorial to show that the people have made a mistake. But it also stands as a memorial to show that our God has forgiven them. That he has given them his grace once again. This list shouldn't be depressing to us, but should cause us joy as sinners have repented of their sins and have been restored in the relationship with God. Their repentance had a memory, a memory which could point themselves and the nation back to their mistakes and show them that God has been faithful throughout it all. We too then must think of our own repentance in a similar way. We shouldn't look back to our previous selves at our old lives and be dragged down by the shame of our past mistakes. 
Instead, we should look back at our old selves and be moved to joy, knowing that our God has forgiven us and brought us to where we are now. We can see how God's grace has worked through every day of our lives up until this point. Think of it as, redeem, as, as remembering our sin from a redeemed perspective. You see, in the future, when we are able to dwell with God and be with him eternally, the things which caused us to mourn, to cry, to be in pain, will be taken away, as we see in Revelation 21.4. But just because all sin will be eradicated at that moment does not mean that our memories of that sin will fade away. Our memories of sin will still remain only to emphasize the sweetness of God's grace. Think of it like a tasting event if you've been to one of those before or, or imagine yourself in a tasting event. Normally in between each food or drink, they'll hand you some sort of palate cleanser which will be able to reset your taste buds and get you ready to experience the fullness of the flavor of whatever comes next. The same thing is true for memorializing our sin. Remembering our mistakes in the past is not meant to drag us down and make us feel guilty, but instead it is used as a palate cleanser to help us remember and experience the fullness of grace once again. We should look back at our old selves, not to sour us, but to enhance the sweetness of the good news of the gospel. To finish this evening, I wanna leave you with one more piece of simple encouragement. Memorialize your sin. Remember who you once were before you met Christ. And then let that move you to remember the grace that our God has given you through Jesus. If you are a believer, then you no longer have that debt of sin to pay anymore, for Christ has paid it. Taste the full range of the sweetness of the gospel and let your life be transformed by it. What better time to do that than right now, the last day of 2023. Let today be the last day that you live with that sinful habit. Go into 2024 relying on God to keep you away from that sin and growing past it. This goes for both believers and non-believers. Come to the Son of God, Jesus Christ, for his grace. Let him take away your sins. Let him grow you next year. Let, let his word take root in your heart in this next year so that you may honor him with each passing day. If this is something you want, if you are hoping to know God deeper this next year, then come before the Lord in true repentance. For our God is merciful and he will forgive all of those who take responsibility for their sins and they, he will remind them of the sweetness of his grace. Church, come before the Lord in true repentance. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.